It's time to sweat it out with Anthony Mendez and Josh Evans. What is up, guys, and welcome back to the Sweat It Out podcast. Today we have a very special guest. She is an assistant of professional of coaching, mental performance consultant of AASP. She is also the author of Dear Coach, tremendous book. Guys, please help us welcome the one and only Dr. Sarah Erdner. How's it going? Good. How are you all? Doing great. Doing How great. you been? I've been good. Like I said, I just got done doing my taxes, so I'm glad to be on the other side of it. Um, so yeah, I'm glad to be here with you all. It's always good when you get over the tax season, right? Right. Or when you get over your yeah. own taxes. <laughs> yeah, I just I just need I need a nap too at this point. So I think that's what I'll do at lunchtime. So. So do you usually do them yourselves, or do you usually get help and uh, have somebody do it for you? Gosh, I was just talking to myself about this. I do it every year myself, and every year I'm like, never again. And then <laughs> the next year rolls around, and I do them again. So um, I think this is my last year doing it myself next year because um, mental health is a big thing. We'll talk about this with within my book as well. And I actually thought about it. I was like, this me doing my own taxes is hurting my own mental health right now. So um, I think next year I'll, I'll definitely give that to other people that love crunching numbers and all that detail work oh man i don't know what i would do without my accountant shout out to you eric you uh <laughs> you're you're the lifeblood of my business no i, I literally <laughs> this year i said all right that's it because i used to do them all the time myself and i literally hired a tax specialist and let her handle everything and now it's just like we know how we're going to approach the rest of this next year for 2021 you know how we're going to be able to like capitalize on on be able to saving money and how where i can like literally make it most efficient and then obviously you know i don't have to do anything you know so it's literally like whoo weight off my shoulder <laughs> i know i'm gonna be on y'all's boat soon i promise i feel like i've been uh and, and honestly it's my ego i think is what it is and i and i want to talk about that too today with my book is i think i'm like oh i can do everything myself i'm good at this i, I you know i can do this and it's going to be more stressful finding somebody and building that relationship and really, when your ego gets in the way, that's when you start hindering your own well-being, your own performance in the world. And so I had that moment. I had to walk away like an hour before this podcast. And I was like, I need to go meditate, one, because I'm uh, getting really angry at this computer. Um, and then, two, I, I just realized, gosh, like, I think this is my ego that keeps bringing me back to doing my, my own taxes. And, and granted, I have to right now definitely make a mention of the privilege that it is to have an accountant. And so for people listening that are like, Oh yeah, well, are you calling me egotistical? Cause I can't get an accountant. Um, but that was just something for me when I was thinking about where I'm at right now is, Oh, I'm just doing this to prove to myself that I can do everything um, rather than passing it along to some experts. See, I love that you mentioned that because it's like, uh, we can all agree is like high performers, uh, we're always trying to like, okay, how can we do this? How can we do this? I'm so own? stubborn or, when it comes to that. Yeah. Or like yeah. He'll, he'll tell you. Or, he'll tell oh, you hundred yeah. percent. And it's just funny because it's like, I tell people, it's like, it, it's great to get you going and it's great to be able to take you to that next step because you know, when you do start, you really do start on your own, right? You know, you start your, as a high performer, you start on your own, you're, you're, you have to prove to yourself and you have to literally go grow through the ranks on your own and be able to mesh through. And then finally, which that that mentality can help you get to a certain point. But then you realize, oh, shit, like this is not lasting forever. 
If not, I'm going to crash. You know, and then it's funny because I remember going through that and it wasn't until really this year that I really started putting a team together. And I'm like, ooh, I'm like, what tremendous weight off my shoulders where I don't have to rely on myself all the time, you know, and I think besides the ego is just a huge trust factor as well, you know, right? Not fully trusting and like at the beginning, like, man, is this person going to do it the way I did it? Are they going to be able to get the same message across for my business? Um, but what if it doesn't look exactly like this? Or what if they didn't put it exactly where I wanted to, you know, and then it goes like, oh, shit, I got to just let them be for a sec. They're experts at what they're doing. They know what they're doing. And then just sit back, trust, and then from there, you can start correcting little things if they need to be corrected. So it's it's so funny, but you see most high performers will tend to usually say that at the beginning and then finally they realize they have to make a shift some point mm. in their life because if not, it's like either you won't keep scaling, you'll stay where you're at, or you're just going to crash. Mm. Well, and that's it. So my PhD is in sports psychology and kind of my side hustle now, which was my main hustle for a while, was doing mental performance consulting. And that's that level up of realizing and I had to do that with my book because I'm an artist too so I, I also do my own uh paintings and is that and the things. artwork we got in the back uh so yes so this is some of my artwork uh back here nice. um, did you do well. the cover yeah. did you do I got your book right here did you do no, the cover I for did, the book I did not do the cover and that's <laughs> I was gonna what say I the to fingers like I I have a tattoo of a hand on, uh, yeah. on my arm I'm like the fingers are pretty good you know? yeah and so I, that's what I had to get my ego out of the way and I even told my publisher when we had our mastermind meeting about oh the cover design I'm an abstract artist and so I really had to speak to them about you know, I had to give up that, I had to trust, I had to let my ego get out of the way. I had to trust their design team because they've been in this book publishing business for years. This is my first book. Um, and so I really, that was the hardest thing I had to do, which was say, Hey, these are some thoughts that I'm having, but then really let their design team run with it. And so we did have, it was definitely a collaboration on the, the cover of the book. You know, if I would have done it myself, it would have been super abstract. And, and they thought, well, Hey, like, we have to re remember our audience here. You know, sport isn't an abstract no, thing. No, very so black and white. To win or lose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, it really, it, the whole process of writing the book forced me to level up, especially to get it to the final product it was at now. And there were so many learning opportunities. But, I, but I'm seeing that too. So I work, I do mental performance consulting with elite and professional athletes. And that's that, that level up there, which is the, we call it attribution in theory so what you attribute things to so when your ego's in the way you you want that pride in attributing everything to yourself but then that gets to burnout and so there has to be that locus of causality locus of control realizing you can't control everything outsourcing some things and then dealing with i just meditated through it i had to breathe a lot and get myself and then once you start building those relationships with people um there's that synergy that honestly I mean, even my book is a great example of this. The end product is a is the synergy of multiple parts. It's of my editor bringing the best out in me. If she wasn't a part of it, Manda Rooker, um, this book would not be the product it is that I'm more proud of. Uh, the design team, the way it looks, my publisher. So again, we rise together. But I had to do my own kind of mental health work and getting my own ego out of the way. Um, in order for that to happen. And so, you know, this could go into a bunch of different conversations on team cohesion and, and stuff. But um, I think that's just a great point that I want to bring to the spotlight with the book to coaches. Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, you need, and it's, 
you need teamwork. You need those people around you, whether it's in a, you know, a very hands-on capacity or even in a supportive role. Right. And it's funny because when you're in that collegiate athletic or even the professional athletic realm, you know, it's always about oh, team, team over self, team over self. But then you, you know, are removed, like, for, at least for me personally, when I just went into the, the private sector of, of training, it was difficult for me to remove the ego and still focus on the team, you know, because then I thought, okay, well, now I'm making money for myself. I'm not getting a salary. I'm not in grad school, you know, getting a stipend. Now I need to go out and make money. Oh, it's me against, you know, Anthony was working at, uh, you know, the same gym I was at. It's me against Anthony. You know, when really it wasn't, you know, it's us together working side by side, you know, he can lift me up, I can lift him up, but it was difficult for me at the time to kind of remove that egotistical wall of like, you know, even though I still have to make my own money and he has to make his own money getting clients, we are kind of in this together, even though we're going down our, our separate paths. hundred percent. So I love, um, the word competition uh, derives, it has a Latin meaning to it, and it breaks down to, um, it means in Latin, competere. So com means with, and tere means, uh, petere means strive together. So you're striving, when you're competing against one another, you're stri- just striving together with somebody. And so we have lost, as we all know in sport, the true meaning of it. We think we're competing against somebody that they're, and you said it, already, Josh, win, lose, black, white, when in reality, the essence of sport, and I think the Olympic committee does a great job of this, is that kind of the spirit of sport. We're really, we're showing up, if, if you're doing sport, if you're competing with people, you show up and say, hey, I'm going to bring my best self today. And I'm going to do that out of respect for me, first and foremost, but also respect for you. Because if I bring my best self, then you're going to want to bring your best self. And no matter the outcome, because we both are bringing our best selves out of respect for self and other, whoever wins it, then that doesn't necessarily matter. Um, and granted, in sport, it does matter. As we all know, there's no getting away of, of winning, not mattering. But the end goal is, is that much more uh, exquisite, if you will, no matter who's making more money. Um, and then again, if you continue just going into that striving with people, you're going to constantly over the years kind of battle. Somebody might be on top one year, another might be on top, but you're still leveling each other up. And that's been something for me. I would love to sit here and say, oh, I'm, I'm perfect at this all the time. Uh, but why mental health is so important for me, do, having a regular, for myself at least, meditation practice where I'm constantly checking in with um I just listened to a podcast recently on a a Holocaust survivor and she was talking about her experience, uh, a particular experience of her with this Nazi uh, police officer, this Nazi officer. And she had a moment where she got really triggered by this officer, rightfully so she's in the, she's a Jew, she's in the Holocaust. Right. And she said on this podcast, she goes, but I realized in that moment that the reason why I was being triggered was because it triggered the Nazi within me. And I just thought I was like, gosh, like I need to constantly stay in check with myself to find, you know, how, how is my ego getting in the way? And this is a lifelong process. This isn't, uh, there's no death to the ego. There's no eradicating the ego. It's constantly waking up with that thought of how might my ego get in the way to where I'm not competing with others, but trying to compete against them. And so the more that I show up in this world with a competing against versus a competing with, 
I'm not only disrespecting other people, but I'm also disrespecting myself because we are all souls made of the exact same material. Um, and so you all are, you know, brothers, if you will, to me. And so why would I not want to, to give to you? Um, because then it's inadvertently giving to myself as well. I think it's so important that we're, we're talking about this topic because you, you see this happening all the time in, um, in different areas, especially when you put, um, mainly in uh, here, but <laughs> especially when you put, you know, alphas or high performers in the same room, you know, especially in ath athletics happens pretty often. This is like so, the fifth table we've gotten, right? <laughs> <laughs> so my question for you is when you work with individuals or from what you have from experience, like how do you determine or what is your take on the healthy ego and the unhealthy ego? And how do you kind of go about that? Yeah, I think that there's definitely functional versus dysfunctional in the moment. Uh, and, and that's something that I think I, I'm Phil Jackson right now is popping up in my head. So I just feel like this is my intuition telling me to go that route with with mm -hmm. him right now as an example. Legend. But um, yeah, I love his stuff. So the last dance on Netflix, I feel like if anybody's not watched that, mm -hmm. he uh, it really oh, kind of so magnifies good. him. Yeah, it is so good. And he he does that really shows his character about where he, he does a lot of meditation with teams. And I feel like I keep throwing that word out as if uh, there's obviously a lot of different ways, but it's helping people stay connected to who they are and understanding that they're operating from the core of their being from a responsive place versus a reactive place. And I think we all like the listeners here, you, you both, I know myself, there's multiple times where uh, I'm very aware when I'm moving from a place of reaction and so that would be a dysfunctional ego. So when I'm trying to, I'm thinking about the stats maybe in a game, like, oh, I need to be, I need to make sure that I'm getting 20 points this game or, or doing a double-double or whatever. So then I'm, I'm, I'm being selfish about it um, versus maybe this isn't the game that I need. I know I need to get a double-double coming up, but maybe this isn't the game for it. Let me keep the, the team in mind. But that takes a lot of finesse. There's not a, you know, I, we talk a lot in mental performance about, and, and you all doing strength and conditioning fitness stuff. Uh, the way I tell people about your brain, you don't go into a gym and, and lift weights and like do, do the, the, uh, the juicy bulk, if you will. And then all of a sudden you walk out of the, the gym and your bicep deflates. Like it's not compartmentalized that way. Like if you go into a gym and you build that, those muscles, you're going to walk out of the gym and be able to like show it off for the world to see in all, all these different areas of your life. So the same with mental strength, the same with the way that you can focus and being and, and building your intuition, which is having athletes in particular, or really anyone checking in with sitting with themselves. So that's why I talk a lot about meditation, mindfulness. Some people might call it breath work as well. Um, Checking in with yourself, building your capacity to know when your intuition's talking, being able to discern your intuition, and that intuition is going to be able to tell you when are you being dysfunctional versus functional in your ego. Um, and so it's about, and Phil Jackson does a great job of providing athletes that space to continue doing meditation works, yoga, if you will, breath work type stuff, so that they can tap into that creative energy within them um, and, and really kind of get to that baseline of, hey, we're all here for a higher reason. We're not here for ourselves. Are there any protocols that you have come across in your research that you believe are more, maybe more beneficial than others in terms of, you know, meditation techniques, breath work? I mean, I 
for one, you know, practice Wim Hof method a lot um, between ice baths and, and the breath work. Um, like you mentioned, there are many others. So um, are there any that you've come across that you really enjoy and that you've seen uh, have been easy to implement into someone's routine? Yeah, for sure. So uh, I've never done Wim Hof stuff, but I've heard great things from oh, people who have to. done it's, it. Yeah, it's, it's I know, fantastic. and I need to get into it. Honestly, I don't know why I haven't yet as a mental strength coach because mm. a lot of the athletes will come to me and be like, hey, I do this, I love it. And my, my, my number one thing is, uh, whether there's research on it or not that demonstrates that it has a high correlation with high performance, it's whatever works for you. And so the placebo effect is real. Uh-huh, 100%. Um, yeah. So some of the things that, uh, I'll do with athletes. So I always start with them just teaching them about proper breathing first and foremost. Uh, so I, an example of this, I worked with an Olympic weightlifter and, and, Based, I mean, as you all know, the physiology of bringing more oxygen into your body is going to give you more power to do uh, more endurance, more power, uh, you know, under the bar, over the bar, whatever. So we, we work on the breath first from a physiological level, and then we kind of lead into that breath is going to be leading into your, your brain as well, giving you sharper focus for mental strength. Then we kind of lead into the, uh, lead into the meditation stuff. And so there's some, from research standpoint, there's mindfulness based stress reduction. Um, so, it, uh, MBSR, and that was what was the first kind of stress reduction. It's an eight week course that you can do. So if anybody out there loves to go on Google scholar and Google this, you can do mindfulness based stress reduction, uh, talks about a lot of John Cobbett Zinn's work where he introduced the Eastern style of meditation into our Western culture. Um, I love doing that with athletes, which is really just using your breath as the anchor. Very basic. Another thing I love doing with athletes. Um, I also worked in a, in a baseball setting for a while and they, uh, well, there was a lot of anger in that setting as well as, as we probably just see in sport and in general. Oh, baseball players. No, never. Yeah. Never. I worked with a bunch of them at FAU, bunch of savages, but also yeah. some, some very aggressive some boys. Bats thrown, some, some very helmets. aggressive boys. Yeah. yeah. I hear that, I hear um, usually the scrappiest too. Like the them and la- them and lacrosse. I don't know if you ever worked with lacrosse players, mm-hmm. but also, also a huge group of savages. Kudos to, yes. to all lacrosse and baseball players, you know, for sure. And so going into that space, first of all, as a, as a female was, was very interesting, but then secondly, going in and, and so whenever anger is present in an athlete and um, I'll use myself for an example, because I don't necessarily want to out people or overgeneralize to a group of people. So I was definitely a pretty angry athlete. I was the person that would play basketball and foul out of most games and make non-contact sports, Same. contact sports. <laughs> so um, that was me. I have uh, definitely grown since then. But I was introduced to a meditation called loving kindness. And it's all about sending loving kindness to yourself. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be free from suffering. And then extending that loving kindness to others. So people that um, you start out by extending it to somebody, a beloved other. So, you know, I might think of my mom, like, may my mom be happy, healthy without suffering. You'll send it to a neutral person. And then you'll start getting into sending it to people that irks you. And so if I'm working with a, you know, myself and maybe the umpire for the game or the ref for the game really pissed me off. You know, I might actually send some loving, may that ref be happy, healthy, and free from suffering. And then we'll extend it to more general, maybe to the team that just beat us uh, that really pissed you off. Cause you're like, Oh, we didn't win, but may they be happy. May they be healthy. May they be free from suffering. And it helps keep you in that competing with mindset versus competing against 
you can only imagine me introducing that to a bunch of men. Uh, they were like, what? <laughs> Loving. <laughs> love. Yeah, Why are we bringing love? I don't even want to shake his hand. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I do, and it's not for everyone. And, and I don't necessarily shame anybody if they're like, oh, I just don't want to do this. And that's perfectly fine. But I've had a lot of success with athletes when, when they start do when we incorporate loving kindness. And so we'll do a lot of it in pre-performance routines. So when they're doing their stretching and they're warming up, incorporating that loving kindness meditation to really get their mind in that competing with versus against. And they've noticed considerably, almost every athlete that's incorporated it, which is probably about 75% of the athletes I work with, when they do the loving kindness meditation, they actually perform way better because they don't feel like they're trying to prove themselves to the other team. Because the pro- pr- that proving mentality comes from a competing against. I'm competing against you, thus I have to prove myself. But when you're competing with a team, you're like, oh, I, I, I love myself. I'm going to show up for myself today. And I'm going to show up for you because I respect you. And so it releases that tension that we have of like, let me grit my teeth and get out there, which physiologically puts you in a hindered position to actually just go out there and flow with, with the talent that you have. Sarah, I want to ask you, because I, I love this topic, um, and I want to bring it back to now, let's say, some of the athletes on the younger level. Like, let's say, middle schoolers, high schoolers, going into college, trying to get to pro. You know, sometimes you hear some of the craziest stories that they've they've had in their lives, and they've used that anger as fuel to get them to where they're at the pro level, and that's what's kind of, like, catapulted them. And obviously, you know, as you see through, when they maintain that anger all the way through, it doesn't become healthy. But would you agree that you sometimes need a level of a level of anger from your from your past or when you're going through that current moment in your life as a young athlete? Because that's that's what's going to get you out of your current situation with your family being wherever it is in poverty or you know hurt or because something happened or you got no money, you got to support your family, and that anger inside of you is what's fueling you to get to the top. How do you work with an athlete like that where you don't want them to lose that spark of what's fueling them, but at the same time, obviously, through time, you don't want them to get, you don't want it to affect them and put them down in, a, in an area of darkness either. How do you find that that in between? Because I feel like it, you need some of it to get you there, but obviously, if you maintain it, it becomes a problem. 100%. What a wonderful question. I love working with emotion. Um, I love emotion. Uh, and, and maybe as a female, people are like, oh, of course you do. Like, you're a woman. Um, because there's that socially constructed norm that as a woman, I also grew up in the South as well, um, where it's definitely, you know, there's a lot of intersectionalities where uh, I was socialized into leaning into my feelings, where men aren't. Uh, you learn from a very young age that you have to lock everything away or you will be bullied. Um, And so I think that that is uh, one of the harsh realities of sport right now is that even women or other marginalized groups that get into sport, because sport was built by men for men to produce better men historically, the people like myself that were in sport, we kind of were socialized into be, have ice in your veins. And so what we're dealing with as people are maturing is emotionally unintelligent people but we are making ourselves think just because we're older, because I'm in my thirties that I'm emotionally intelligent. Um, And that's not the case. If anything, we've kind of reverted back. So what I do when I'm working with athletes is I, uh, I have this, it's called an emotion wheel. And so it's just kind of a, not an exhaustive list, but it provides like these different emotions for athletes. I'll say, Hey, how are you feeling right now? 
And usually they'll say, oh, I'm feeling fine, which fine is not an emotion, first of all. Um, I'm like, no, no, oh, no. Oh, we know that better. Sure. Men, trust me, as men, we know that better than anybody. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. You know how many times oh, we heard that from our girlfriends or wives? Men, like, yeah. oh, I'm fine. Like, oh, okay, perfect. This is going to be great. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Well, and again, you're going to be fine yeah, for another 30 minutes until yeah. I get well, a, a pot thrown at my head. <laughs> well, and I even the other day was in counseling and I was doing this session with uh, Jess as my counselor. And she said, uh, I was doing some body up work. So some EMDR stuff. And she was like, how are you feeling right now? And I was like, Oh, I'm fine. And she was like, this is counseling. You can tell me your emotions. Like, mm. and I was like, yeah, I'm here paying for this. Why am I not telling you how I'm feeling? But I have athletes to, you know, figure out what their emotion is that they're feeling. And, uh, the, the wheel itself is, is a little, uh, there's multiple emotions on there. So the athletes can, first of all, like sometimes if we just identify how we're feeling, it alleviates that feeling because we just acknowledge it. And so what we do is I say, okay, like, let's say uh, they're feeling angry um, and they're feeling frustrated maybe. And I'll say, okay, let's put this emotion on a continuum because no emotion is a bad emotion. Again, uh, going back, Josh, to what you said in the beginning, right? Like sport is black or white. You win or lose. It's good or bad. Like we live in this horrible duality, I think, in sport that actually hurts our mental performance and overall performance because we think there's good emotions and bad emotions. Don't be angry, be happy, right? Don't be sad, be joyful. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. And so what we've done is we've, we've dissociated from our body so much, or we shame ourselves when we feel a certain way, because maybe we've been told by our families or our churches or friends or, or some other media source that anger is bad. When in reality, I say, okay, you're feeling angry, you may be frustrated. Let's put this on a continuum between productive and unproductive right? Like it can go either way. And so let's put anger on a continuum and put on one end of it, you could be raging angry, right? And then that could be the unproductive. On the other, it could be like a righteous anger, right? Like watching, um, you know, maybe you're being discriminated against in, in, within your sport. And so let's talk about the different behaviors that might go with how you might rage and how you might have justified anger, how it might fuel your performance and how it might hinder your performance. And so it helps the athletes start to see that anger itself is not bad, but the way in which you respond to that emotion coming up could be what holds you back. So an umpire gives you a really bad call, raging, throwing your helmet, mm -hmm. throwing the bat, cussing at the ref, all of that stuff. How is that helping your performance right now versus I'm really angry. This is justified anger because that was a really bad call. Maybe there's even a playback where you see it was a bad call. Okay, cool. Now I know how this, this ump is working. Now I'm so going to smack me, a home run out of here in the next Exactly. One. <laughs> let me go back up to the, to the, uh, to the batter's box and let me use this information, this Intel as that's going to fuel my performance now. Like I'm still angry. I'm not mad at myself for being angry, but I'm going to use this anger to then direct my attention to how I can use it, leverage it. Um, and so that's how I talk to athletes about it. So that way they stop this shaming cycle where we shame ourselves for, I shouldn't be mad right now. I shouldn't be, I should be joyful. I should be this. I mean, you should just be is what you should be but let's talk about how you can be in a productive way rather than an unproductive. Powerful. Yeah, that's absolutely powerful. That's a, that's a great takeaway. Uh, I want to use this. I definitely want to get to your book, right? Cause your book is amazing. Uh, but I, 
you you brought up justifiable anger, and I kind of want to use that segue as a, a way to talk to you. You've been posting a decent amount, and you know it's something that I've been talking to a lot of people about as well. Uh, everything kind of going on with Title Nine now, and some of the changes that they're making. I know you've been getting pretty heated with this. I told you on, on Instagram <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about this um, because I think it's such a big uh, a big issue that that a lot of people aren't discussing right now, right? Um, and I and I understand it from both perspective. Uh, let me kind of lay it out for some people, or may, or maybe, and then I'm sure you can chime in as you want. Uh, what's going on right now is they're they're like pushing through a bill for transgender rights to start allowing transgender people to participate in uh, male or female sports, depending on which which direction you're transitioning into. Um, big problem with that is though that, you know, people like myself and Anthony, if we wanted to transition into being a female, physiologically, we do not have uh, the body of a female and therefore are sma- uh, people or, or men who are transitioning into being women are smashing women, actual women right now, biological women in sporting events, in their own sporting event, uh, something that they have fought long and hard for to be able to have every equal right, as you were mentioning, to be able to participate given all of the discrimination that was going on between men and women in the past in athletics. Uh, I don't know if I butchered that or not. I'm sure that you could kind of take it away. I would love to hear your uh, thoughts on that. My sister is uh, part of the uh, women's basketball team at Syracuse. She's a student manager there. I coached her in uh, her younger years, so obviously I have a huge respect for women and women athletics, uh, and I kind of want to get your two cents on everything that's kind of shaking out right now and where you kind of see things heading because I don't think it's great for women's sports or women in general, in my personal opinion. Yeah. And I need to say this first, I've not been following along with that specifically. Some of the things I've been getting heated on were the NCAA women's basketball weight room. Uh, um, my, I got, I got to send you, I'll send you a bunch of videos after this. My sister was in San Antonio cause she works for the women's team and Syracuse was part of the NCAA tournament. And Oh my God, it was so trite. She was livid. I, I mean, it's, I can't, you know, luckily we're on YouTube, so I could probably say some of the things she was telling me. But the video she was sending me, it's just absolutely embarrassing. Such a slap in the face to women, uh, women basketball players. You know, they work so hard. I, I know firsthand from, from hearing from my sister and, and being a part of Syracuse Athletics in the past myself, like such a such such a slap in the face to those women. I mean, you can kind of shed some more light on that, I'm sure. For sure, yeah, and, and I'll definitely get into that. And I wanted to say that I haven't necessarily, so this bill that you just brought up, I haven't really done um, a lot of research on it, so I'm not going to speak so much toward it. Um, what I do know is, and again, Josh, going back to what you said in the beginning, which was so foundational sport, it's black or white, it's male or female, it's yes or no, it's win or lose. And we as a society, because that's all been socially constructed, it's been beat into us. We are comfortable with that. We are comfortable with you are a man, you are a woman Mm -hmm. and leave it this way. Um, and I think that that has actually caused so much harm for people, uh, such as myself, for example, which is why the NCAA women's basketball, them uh, being so disrespectful to women and having the weight room like that was so triggering. Even to the me. food. Oh Even my the gosh. Food. I've heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. Because in, in the reason why, and I'll, I'll loop all of this together is as a woman, I was actually recently told by somebody that um, they needed to feel more like a man. Thus they wanted to be with somebody that was more feminine 
And I, I then went into this concept of, okay, well, how, how would you define being feminine then? And their response was, they stuttered over their words. They were like, well, I don't know, this is kind of hard to conceptualize. I'm not really sure, like softer, more giving, you know, all of this type stuff. And I was just like, it brought me back to this experience. So when I was working with a baseball team, um, they had these developmental sessions and they got up on the board and they were having a uh, developmental boys to men session. Um, and, and rightfully played, they would always play boys to men when everybody would walk Mm -hmm. in. Yeah. You know, um, and I was digging it at first until I'm again, being one of the only women working uh, for an all male team and I'm sitting in the back and the coach gets up front and they say, okay, like they wrote the word boy on the board and underlined it. And they said, okay, what does it mean to be a boy? And they all started like whiny, emotional, like weak, like all these things. And then they wrote, um, the word man and underline it say, what does it mean to be a man? And they were like, be a leader, be strong, be resilient, all of these words. And so I'm sitting in the back and again, I'm a feminist too. And again, feminism doesn't mean I'm burning bras and wanting the matriarchy to, to come out. It just means that I want equality for all sexes. Yes. I love men as much as I love women. And I think that we're both, you know, being screwed over by this current system. Um, but so at the end they were like, yeah, so we, we want to teach y'all how to be boys, be weak to men, be strong, to be leaders. And so they were like, does anybody else have anything to add? And so my feminist self raised my hand (laughs) and I said, uh, Hey, like, I'm just curious because you know, what would you say the opposite of a, of a, a boy or a man is? And then the moment I asked that question, everybody knew exactly where I was going. They were like, Oh, like one brave soul in the room, a girl or a woman. I was like, exactly. And so the subtext that you're writing on this board right now is that I, as a woman, because I have a vagina and I don't have a penis, I'm not strong, resilient, right? Or any of these things that I'm, y'all would couch me within the boy group that I'm emotional, that I'm weak, because those are, that's how we've socially constructed because we've been so much about separating the sexes. Men are this, women are this, masculine is this, feminine is this. And so looking at what the NCAA did with women's basketball, that just really shows the implicit bias of, well, women are weak. Women don't need to lift weights. So they don't need to be strong in order to compete. And so looking at the, going into back into the, the transgender like athlete, this policy, which I don't know much about. And, mm-hmm. and this is actually giving me a lot of, uh, I'm going to get off of here and go and look at it a lot. Oh, more. you should. It's interesting for sure. Yeah. I would, I would love and, to and get your take. I've heard a couple of things that I really do through, through my education, through just seeing some different videos. There is a lot of, there's a lot of shame around being male or female. And so I, for example, I'm a very strong individual. I did strong woman competitions for a while. Hell yeah. Um, I put on muscle very easily. Um, I want people, I've had so many sexist comments said to me, men will be like, Oh, like your biceps are bigger than most guys. And I'm just like, first of all, stop, you know, putting me, putting me in that light. Mm. But I think that I have felt shame myself because I, want whether I like it or not we all do right like even men it's like let me go lift weights and look real big and beefy you know um, so that I can fit this mold of what it means to be a man and then for me it is a constant having to battle of gosh I love looking strong but how can I try to look feminine to really like counter this out and so I want to bring that to light in that because of this duality of how we have socially constructed what it means to be a man what it means to be a woman that also being intersected by different identities where you grew up regionally maybe your religion you grew up in 
that I think we are all, a lot of people's responses around this bill that's coming through is based out of fear. It's, it's more about, and that fear based is what's making us against things, mm-hmm. right? So it's scary because we don't know it. And I, there was a medical doctor recently that was talking about, there are actually more intersex people in this world than we're aware of. And it's because those individuals that are, that are born intersex or that are born all these different types of sexes, because it, it's not just male, you're, you're born a boy, you're born a girl. There's, all, there's such a different con, uh, a continuum there, but there's so much shame around it that nobody's talking about it. You don't have people proudly waving their flag saying, I'm intersex, mm-hmm. because then people are going to treat them so uh, differently. And so there's people out there hiding their identities right now because they were biologically born a certain way but they weren't born into their biology doesn't fit the socially constructed norms. And so they've been hiding. So my only thing with that bill, and and I'll just leave it at this is how can we just become curious about it? How can we allow ourselves to think about trans uh, transgender athletes and really open ourselves up to hearing their stories um, instead of making it about reading that and saying, "Mm, you know, I'm either for it or against it. Mm -hmm. You know, so right now the stance that I'm taking is, uh, I don't necessarily, um, I'm not going to put myself on, oh, here's a side and I'm going to argue it. I'm more in a, I don't know too much right now. Let me get curious and let me really uh, look on, on, see the argument on both sides of the fence. And, um, but do it with an open heart. Do it with one that's not uh, really trying to put my ego aside. And, and what implicit biases might I have? I grew up in a Southern Baptist church of which I don't identify anymore, but I grew up in it for 20 something years. And so I was raised in a community that uh, told me you're gay, you're going to hell. And so I had to have that hard conversation with myself of how that narrative was then influencing how I interpreted things later in life. And so that's what I would definitely ask of this audience is to just take a step back, realize where your implicit biases might lie. And, um, and don't be scared to just hear, hear an opposing side that might seem uncomfortable now. Um, and don't be scared to change your opinion. That doesn't mean you're weak. If anything, that means you're uh, more inclusive, uh, willing to expand your mind. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is a great learning experience, in particular to this topic, uh, that we can extrapolate to, to more things because it is such a nuanced conversation, right? Like if we're talking about contact sports, you know, maybe we need to handle things a little differently than we talk about non-contact sports. And maybe we have different, you know, subgroups uh, in order for everyone to be able to compete and, and have uh, the ability to compete fairly, right? Uh, whereas in, in some other sports, maybe we don't need to, to go down that route. And, you know, I've had this conversation with uh, a lot of my clients. I deal or a lot of my clientele happen to be in, in the LBGTQ community, uh, you know, mainly gay men. And I always there, you know, when I bring up this bill there, yeah, you know, we need to have more, you know, uh, more, uh, freedom, more equality, more, you know, equal ability to have access to the same rights as other groups have. Um, and I just bring up to them, you know, because my, you know, my sister is uh, a female athlete. I'm like, well, I don't, you know, if you, like if Mendez went to go compete against them and he, you know, identified as a woman, he would kick the shit out of my sister, even though she's a highly competitive, you know, high school athlete at the time, um, just because of his physiology. So, there are different sides that we do need to look at. And I think if we just open up the conversation and are more accepting of each other, right? Because 
you even brought up the fact that, you know, it's kind of difficult to be a man or a woman right now and, and find our own places like a heterosexual straight male or a heterosexual, you know, straight female, biological female, biological male. Like, where do we really fit into this? How do we, you know, accept other groups while also still hold what we find true and, and hold what we believe is evident and right in our own way? How do we you know, maintain that ability while also still being acceptive of other groups. And I think it all just does come down to having more conversations yeah. like the one we're having right now. Yeah, and I think a hundred percent going back to, you know, you know, being able to sit down agreeing and disagree, agree to disagree and just have, you know, st you know, if you have your opinions and you need to, and you change it because of information that you're learning from the different sides. And like you said, it's completely okay. You know, and it puts you in a, it actually puts you in a place of like, you know, realizing what you actually stand for, believe in, or what you're realizing, you know, might tend to lean towards more of, of your own belief systems. You know, I had, a, I had a conversation with a friend of mine and she was, she's a fighter, you know, she's a fighter. And um, she was just telling me that, you know, she wrestles, she does MMA, she practices and spars with guys all the time. You know, she's told me like, you know, she's like, I've beaten guys, you know, I've beaten guys up and I've done stuff like that. But she's like, but I'll tell you something, you know, we're talking and she's like, you know, at the competitive level, she's like, you know, because we were talking about this same thing. She's like, I don't know if it'd be safe for them to put a guy at a high competition level MMA UFC versus a woman just because of the, you know, you know, the the biological, you know, identity of, the, of a man and a woman, you know. So just because she gave me an example of this um, one guy who was transgender and he wasn't a great he wasn't a great fighter i think it was it was before the ufc or something like that he wasn't a great fighter amongst the men and he was going through a change and he went to the women and he was just destroying it and he, there was one fight where she said she cracked some girl you know they were leaving nobody, oh, yeah, nobody been, knew at the it's time it's been happening like breaking knew, breaking no, girls faces yeah nobody you know, knew that he was a, nobody knew he was a, a man because he had done his change and at that time people were really i think there's like the early 2000s or something like that or and at that time nobody really knew and he had his whole change name everything and he really like almost killed a, a, a woman and then from mm. there they figured out that it was a guy and mm. they were having that whole issue so she was telling me like it, it goes back to like you know the groups are making, you know, if it makes sense, you know, where if you're sparring, practicing, cool, you have your limitations, you know where to go. But then she was telling me, she's like, I just think in a sport like MMA, I think it could be dangerous. You know, And people always like to go to those extremes too. You know what I mean? Like a, a lot of the times people, you know, I'm, I'm both sides of the aisle. You know, if you talk about, you know, having, you know, more rights for transgender people, which I'm, I'm all for. I think we need equal rights. We need to all feel safe in our communities and yeah. in our environments and, and feel like we can prosper. Um, you know, in, in those instances as well, it's like I, I can completely see it. And I think, you know, that's really where all this, this nuanced conversation comes in. I do want to get to your book, Dear Coach, What I Wish I Could Have Told You, Letters from Your Athletes, because this, really, uh, this really opened up a lot of things for me as a former strength and, and conditioning coach. This is a great book for anyone uh, looking to buy it. You can buy it on Amazon, correct, or just from your website? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it will not come out. So if you're listening to this podcast before June 22nd, 2021, and you're in the United States, it won't um, come out on Amazon, the paperback at least. The ebook version is currently available. Um, and then if you're in the UK, um, it won't come out until July 28th. But you can go on my social medias and, and get to my Google Doc and 
order a signed author copy. And oh, that's so great. I got my little, my little sign thing here. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. I love that nice little touch when authors do that. It's great. I'm not even yeah, kidding. I saw this book and I'm like, it makes me want to write a letter to you. <laughs> oh, please do. Oh, that'd be wonderful. I'm actually writing. I started my second book. So if you want to write one for I that. I definitely it's, will. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, but you can go on my social media, even if it's after the time that you can go on Amazon, obviously I'm a shop local person, uh, me being the local person. <laughs> so shop from me and you can get an advanced reader copy, um, which is signed by me and then I'll ship it, um, to you as well. Came so. quick too. So I gotta give it to you. you yeah. Know. Uh, what made you, what made you want to write this book? I mean, obviously I know I read your book, uh, but I want, I want the audience to hear from, from the author herself. Gosh, yeah. Um, so I started in my uh, master's and my PhD program. Um, I mean, to be quite honest, I'm not going to sit here and tell some like uh, inspirational story. I needed to graduate and get my degrees. And so the biggest thing is when you're, I, I was very interested in the coach athlete relationship, but you also know that there's a deadline here and I need to graduate so I can go out there and, and get a job and make some money. Um, and so in research, doing qualitative stuff, doing interviews, uh, you have to think about who, who are the participants I can get the easiest. And so I started with coaches. I started interviewing coaches because they, I could email them. Their emails are online. And so I started with uh, NCAA Division One coaches, uh, just emailing them, saying, hey, will you do this interview with me? Asking them about how they believe they influence athlete resilience. And so when I was uh, looking through those interviews, transcribed them, read them back to myself, the most saturated answer I got was at the end of every single interview, every coach was like, you know, Sarah, like, it's all cool. Like you asking us how we think we influence athletes, but we really want to know what the athletes think about us. And I was they like, never tell you the truth. They, they never don't. tell you. Um, like, oh, can you give me some feedback? They're like, you're great. You know, like keep blowing the way. I'm like, nah, you're not. I know you hate me. You can tell me the truth. That's exactly. okay. Like, yeah. You hate and that 6 a.m. whistle. <laughs> yeah. And even if you say that to them, they'll just kind of chuckle it off awkwardly. Like, I oh, cause they don't want to go to the him. field. They don't want to be doing those sprints. You know? Exactly. Yeah. So I knew in that moment, I just, I called my dissertation chair and I was like, Hey, uh, we got to completely 180 this dissertation. Um, because I have to follow the cookie crumbs and this might delay my graduation. If that's the case, like that's going to be more money out of my pocket, but cool. Like, cause I agree. It was what I wanted to do originally, but I wasn't following my instinct. I had my ego, my ego was in the way. My ego was just trying to like compete against people, get done with the deadline, move along. So I changed, I had to call our institutional review board and like change up a bunch of stuff. It was a headache logistically, but I finally got to where I was able to interview athletes and Hey, how do you believe your coach influenced your ability to bounce back from major stress? And what I thought was going to be 60 to 90 minute interviews were two and a half to three hour long conversations where tear, like tears were shed. I cried a couple of times just hearing how moving these stories were. Um, and I truly believe, I mean, some of these athletes, we would do like 60 minutes and then we would have a second session to finish out the interview. Cause they were like, we have never had this third neutral party really like ask us. It's been a lot of complaining amongst our teammates, maybe complaining to our p parents, but nothing's been happening. And so as they started giving me their stories and, and when I went to defend my dissertation, my dissertation committee was like, you have to write a book. Like this does not need to just be in a research journal article somewhere sitting on the shelf where like five people max in your entire life might download it. And so then that's when, and I agreed, I felt very like, I felt like the universe was like, 
here, we've given you this information, like go be the torchbearer. So I, I started uh, contacting people. Hey, how the heck do you write a book? What, what is the first step? I was like Googling, like how to write a book. <laughs> so um, I got connected to Morgan James Publishing from John O'Sullivan. Uh, he's uh, uh, CEO of Changing the Game Project, uh, which is within youth sport. Um, and Morgan James took me on very enthusiastically. I was kind of surprised. And then I found Amanda Rooker, my editor, who such a great relationship with her to help get the book to where it's at. And so Dear Coach now has taken many forms since the first time I wrote uh, first draft of it. The first draft, uh, my ego was in it. Um, I had only 10 letters in the book and I provided a letter and then I immediately provided my two cents on what I thought the reader should get out of the letter based on research and blah, blah. I was teaching a methods of coaching class one day and I was talking to the, or to the aspiring coaches about um, getting your ego out of the way and letting athletes have a voice. And I stopped mid sentence and just stared at the back wall and the students were like, are you, are Dr. Erdner, are you okay? And I was like, uh, I'm going to use myself as an example here of how I'm not doing what I'm teaching you all to do. And I told them about how my book, how I was going through the book and I only had 10 letters and, I was basically providing a letter and then dictating for the reader what they should get out of it, which is often what coaches do. They dictate the training schedules for athletes. They tell them what they should be doing. And athletes just sit there. You learn to be quote unquote coachable, which means being silent, following what you're told to do, not really checking in with your body, letting your body tell you what you should do. Um, and I was like, you all like, I need to call. So I called my editor immediately and was like, we need to like, halt. I was actually right at the end of finishing the book. We were going to get it published. And that actually tacked another year onto the writing process wow. because I told Amanda, I said, I need to shut up more and I need to get more letters. That's so that's when I put a call out and got, now there's 30 letters in the book. And they're um, fantastic. Yeah. They're fantastic. They're very, they, they definitely opened up a, a ton of, uh, a, you know, a lot of personal emotion to me, good and bad. Uh, you know, the first half of your, your book is talking about, you know, a lot of the the good that the coaches can can really uh, have in in an athlete's life, and then you you dive into some, you know, some pretty some pretty rough stories that I have to listen to, and and it, and it really made me question a lot. Not saying I was a bad coach; definitely could have been a better coach than I was early in my career. But you know, it it really made me have to analyze. And I love I love how you mentioned you put in here. Uh, a lot of the reflections, I have, a, I have a bunch of notes in mind, right, where you give the coach an actual time, you know, to answer a couple of questions, you know, like what stood out in the athlete's letter and then how, how would you or could you incorporate it into, into your own coaching. And, you know, it's made me realize a lot of the things that I'm already doing well, you know, um, and then I'm going to double down on and, and, you know, even some things that I think I could, I can improve on. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a tremendous book, uh, Definitely one that I think a lot of people need to need to be reading. Every every single coach out there, uh, whether you work with athletes or not, you need to be reading this letter because your clients are athletes, whether you believe it or not. And uh, even if you are an athlete, I think it's I think it's a tremendous book for for you to read because it it allows you to understand it's okay to express your emotion to these coaches. We want to know, right? Even as a professor, I'm sure you want to know how your teachers or how excuse me how your students. Uh, are are learning and processing the information in your classes, right? 
And, uh, you know, without that feedback, we can't improve. Uh, no, it's not always the easiest to talk to people. I mean, it's not even easy for us to talk to each other a lot of the times, but it's necessary. Josh, Josh doesn't want to hear my emotions. No, nah, never. <laughs> never. Stonewall. Stonewall. But it's necessary for us to be successful together, right? You talk about for competing sure. with, right, at the beginning of the podcast. Competing with. I'm competing with Mendez uh, on a personal level, uh, mainly to, to get my beard as good as his is. But... Um, <laughs> You know, I think this book this book drives home a lot of amazing points, uh, and I I'm excited for more people to read it after this podcast. I'm definitely for sure. have to get my hands on it. Yeah, heck yeah! No, I love that you wrote in the book. That oh my god, so I I mean, I highlighted the shit out of it too. I mean, if you went through it, it'd be it's uh, it's almost torn apart. I might need to get another. I one. love <laughs> that. Yeah, my favorite quote um, is a book read by a thousand different people is a thousand different books, and so. What I love is what you highlighted, what you wrote in those notes are unique to you and your life experiences are influencing how you're approaching these letters. And, um, and so what you're going to write, isn't going to be the same of what I, I would write. And so I really, I'm really proud of the finished product from what it started out as this ego driven book to this very, how can I even write this book in such a way that even right now, as an example, we're both approaching the table and having a conversation about it. And, um, I think one of the biggest things I wanted to talk about at the very end of the book that, and I, I apologize to coaches, I apologize to you all for being coaches. We've done such a lousy job at advocating for you all in, in your own mental health. Everything we have right now, there's like athlete-centered coaching philosophies. There's everything is about how can we get the athlete to where that they're, they're at, and which is you're denying yourself as a coach and your own well-being. And it's always this like, oh, how, is the, how are the athletes doing? And then maybe at the end it's like, well, how's your self-care? Yep. And it's always mm-hmm. laughable because it's like there is no time. And so one of the things I, I champion and advocate for is, is coach mental health initiatives. And I think, for example, at the NCAA level, all these athlete mental health initiatives, and which are great. I love them. I don't want anything to happen to those but in my experience as a mental performance coach, 70 to 75%, sometimes even in upwards of 80% of athletes' mental performance issues are because their coach is causing their anxiety, because their coach is making them fearful or all these things. And so we have to realize it's the, the energy is a trickle-down effect. And so if we don't have mentally healthier coaches, athletes aren't going to have people to model mental health from. And from a neuroscience perspective, we have mirror neurons that we mimic the behavior of those who are around. So how can we change the system of sport to care for all stakeholders and not just those that are the money makers? Because the money makers, the athletes, they feel that pressure. They know they have to perform. And if they don't, then that embarrassment of the entire organization is on their back. Um, and if we take some of that pressure off by also saying, hey, let's put these resources into other people, um, the more that we can heal our, the more that we can say as coaches, Hey, I see myself, I've healed myself. We're able to then say more so say, Hey, I see you. And that actually builds a better relationship, better team cohesion, better team, better performance. I love that. that. I love that. I'll tell you right now. It's, it's like a saying, I always say you got to be selfish with yourself first in order to be selfless with others. Right. In order to be selfless for your family, for your, your clients, your partners for your teammates right you got to be selfish with yourself so you can show up powerfully i love that i absolutely mm-hmm. love that i gotta say personally thank you so much for coming on here and um you know sharing what you shared with us today and also as well with your book i think it's amazing i know i'm gonna get my hands on it now and read it and write in it too um i'll probably even send you that letter like i mentioned um, oh wonderful 
So I just want to make sure everybody can connect with you. Where can they find you? Where can they uh, access you? And then, of course, you know, plug the book in again. Yeah, so um, I'm on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, my handle's at doc, D-O-C underscore Serdner, S-E-R-D-N-E-R, um, on both Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I also have an at underscore dear coach, uh, no spaces, all lowercase, Instagram and Twitter account too. So if you don't want to follow my rants <laughs> on the NCAA <laughs> women's basketball weightlifting. Oh, they've been um, so good. Yeah, they, I, I get very, very into social justice stuff. So, um, but on there, on both uh, all of my Instagram, all my Twitters, uh, there is a Google form on there. So if you want to order that signed author copy, either before June 22nd when it comes available on Amazon or other bookstores, um, or even after, uh, again, it'll be personally written in by me, come from this Colorado air that I'm in. So, um, so yeah, that'd be lovely. Thank you so much. Like I wrap everything off with every guest in one sentence. What's the biggest piece of advice you can leave off to all our listeners? I would say, uh, be, be non judgmentally curious. I love that. Boom. That's great. Way to wrap it up. Sarah, thank you again for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Guys and girls, everyone who's listening, make sure you go pick up her book, Dear Coach. You can go grab it uh, from her social media profile. It's amazing. I highly recommend it. Uh, easy to read. Tons of impact. Dear Coach, go get it now. Sarah, thank you again one last time. Appreciate you. Until next time, everybody. Thank you for listening to Sweat It Out with Anthony Mendez and Josh Evans. Enjoyed this episode? Make sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review.